my name is Julene Jackson, and I am with Moms for America, and I'm so thrilled to be with you on this Wednesday morning. You beautiful mamas come from all over the country, West Coast, East Coast, high and low, uh, to learn together these principles of liberty and freedom. We're going to discuss today lesson number five from our introductory uh, 12 Cottage Series lessons from this manual, hopefully you all have it, all the materials, the stories, the quotes will come from presentation number five in this book today, The Valor of Virtue. I want to just, first of all, thank Viv for leading the charge the last two weeks while I was in Egypt, leading us through lesson number three, Ladies First, and lesson number four, The Foundation of Faith. You were able to preview the videos that we have made for each lesson and what that might look like to bring women into your home and push play and have me teach the lesson and then to go through and, and facilitate discussion on the questions that are presented to you from this material. Hopefully it worked. I mean, I, I, we just put it out there and ask the Lord to magnify and enhance it and make it what it needs to be in the life of all you beautiful mothers and grandmothers that are seeking knowledge to shore up their homes and their children and communities. Thank you so much, ladies, for being with you. I can being here today. I congratulate you for being a part of these pockets of liberty that are forming all across the country. Mothers coming together to learn from one another, to share experiences, and then to take what you're learning back to your home, in your marriages with your children and grandchildren and into the communities. I know you wouldn't be here if you didn't want to perpetuate these freedoms and these liberties. And we know we can feel it. They're under attack. And we can't really defend and uphold something that we don't understand ourselves. This is why these cottage meetings are so important to gather together. Because when mama and grandmother understands these things, her children, her posterity will. And when mother is anchored in hope, her whole family will know that we look to God when we're in trouble. And we will keep that family close. And as we learn these principles of truth in the Constitution, and we put it out there to God, what do you want me to do? He will put in your heart what you should do. And uh, we're so grateful. Sam, are you on? Do you want to come on? So Sam went through the cottage meeting, the 16-week Healing of America class. I'll never forget her calling me just a few classes in saying that she was thinking of running for the school board, but she wasn't sure, but God was a God of miracles back then. And maybe he'll be a God of miracles in her life today. Sam, can you, can you just report what happened? Yes, we have, um, I live in um, York County, Pennsylvania. And so there were 16 school districts there um, that had school board elections, you know, up for running. We had um, a pretty massive initiative of people that were stepping up to run for school board. Some even, you know, just a couple of weeks ago to serve as write-ins because I think really when the NSBA came out and called parents domestic terrorists, you know, parents that maybe were sort of on the fence really knew that they needed to get involved. And so it has been a wonderful um, just movement here in Pennsylvania. But for me personally, personally, um, as Julene said, um, 
I approached her about running for school board um, after a few of these meetings. And I just, I cannot tell you how life-changing this has been for me. Um, just the principles that we talk about with Liberty, with learning about our founding fathers and having just the knowledge and the courage and the confidence to be able to you know, just know all that has inspired me. And I will leave you with this. Um, I won, I won, I was number one. I, nobody knew who I was in my area and I got the most votes. So yay. And the other thing is that one person turned into six people because I had two people join me as running mates. I had another gentleman join me um, to run for constable. And then uh, another person run as judge of elections and another person to run as inspector of elections. So one person starting in February ended up in November with six people taking part in our local, our local community. So it's been wonderful. So thank you for the opportunity to talk. Oh, honey, that is so inspiring. God is a God of miracles. And look at the rippling effect, your courage to get on that wall and go, okay, I, I, I'm going to try how that inspired and touched the hearts of others. You could have never anticipated back in February. So that is so inspiring. And then Tyler, from Virginia. Are you on, Tyler? So Tyler started a cottage meeting in Fairfax County, Virginia, and it's been so instrumental in, in being a part of these mothers and fathers that are going before the school board. And in the Washington Post today, this Republican governor flipped a, a stronghold for the Democrats, won as governor, and the Post, I know that this just hurt their hearts to say this, but they said focus on the schools was what drove the GOP gains and caused a shift that they think might be a national bell, bellwether, this dramatic reversal for a state that had solidly been democratic in recent years and is really a significant loss. And they're attributing it to, and I heard this on Fox News this morning, to the mothers of the nations going before the school boards, this uh, uh, election that they won in Virginia by Governor Youngkin. And Tyler was right in the middle of that. She, she'd organized these rallies. She's spoken before the school boards. Tyler, what can you have to say about what happened? I'm here and I am just on cloud nine this morning. I am so grateful. My heart is just so full and so full of hope today. I'm just, I'm on fire. I'm just so excited because we've worked really hard and um, it's just, it was so exciting to see what happened last night here in Virginia. If you guys don't know, Biden won here by 10 points last year. And so this was a major shift. Virginia has been purple and many people have said, no, it's not purple, it's actually blue. Um, because Loudoun and Fairfax are so deeply blue now and you know they didn't help us much last night my county or the one next to me but um, we certainly yeah. pulled it off so it's encouraging and we can't wait to move forward there's so much work to be done but it's definitely the boost that we needed um, after well, this last couple of years. And Tyler you put out I got an email from you a day or two ago about a, a a prayer rally that you all had the night before elections. What was that about? Yeah, so um, 
just some women here and people that are on the Patriots Digest. I put it out and I said, hey, this is a big election. We've done everything we can physically. We got to take it to God. We've been taking it to God, but one last time, just rally together. And these mamas came on. We had like 10 or 12 moms. They came together. Some I have never met, some I don't even know, but they are on my you know email blast and they signed on and they just poured their hearts out. They were crying, praying, praising God, you know, begging God. It was just beautiful. It was so beautiful. And, you know, it was, it was a really special time of prayer. And then, you know, yesterday God answered. And so we are so thankful and grateful and glory to God for, you know, so I wasn't able to join that prayer rally, but I was praying. So just, you don't even know, sometimes you think, oh, only this amount of people showed up but there were people that were praying that you didn't even know about. So Tyler puts out a digest twice a week of events that are going on in her community. I'm sure if any of you want to put your email address in the chat there, she will sign you up for the digest. It's so great and might give you an opportunity or an example of what you could maybe do in your community amongst your little listserv of people that you uh, might know. So anyways, I would recommend uh, joining her Patriots Digest that she and another little friend um, mama in her community put out. And there was another mama from Idaho, Mandy Shumway. I'm not sure if she's on. Uh, she's attended our cottage meetings. And she called me a few months ago and said, Julie, I don't know. I have the application. I don't know if I, and I told her, yes, if you don't run for school board, who will? And she reported early this morning, it was a landslide. 58% of the vote went to her. So I, I'm telling you, mamas, God is a miracle back then, and he is a miracle now. If we will just learn the things that we need to, he will use us in unique ways if we will prepare ourselves and have the courage. And we gain courage as we join together each week, and we get ideas from each other, and we hear what other people are doing, and and it's inspiring. Just like lesson three in our cottage meeting manual says, ladies first, when the woman gets educated, the man does, everyone follows for as the woman goes, so goes the nation. And we saw that uh, last night in these, this morning as these returns are coming in and, and the newspapers are attributing it, the mothers of the nation that made the impact on some of these elections. So the last time that we met last week, we talked about the first liberty, a pillar of liberty, um, the foundation of faith. And today we're going to talk about the second pillar of liberty, the valor of virtue. You know, I hope you enjoy that foundation of faith lesson that, you know, as our children understand that it was through prayer and through Bible study that our founders did what they did that they form this nation on these principles of God's law. And as we teach our children this, it will help them know that hope is on the horizon when they need to connect with God for their battles ahead. And so Viv, let's look at that slide number two. Maybe you've already put that up there. The second pillar of liberty today is the valor of virtue. Virtue is really just having the moral courage to make our actions consistent with what we believe or what we say. So if we say we love God and we love America and we love our founders, we're actually, it's going to be a part of us. And we're going to, you know, we're going to act on these beliefs. We're not just going to give lip service. Virtue is vital to sustaining liberty. And we're going to talk about what 
public virtue versus private virtue means. Viv, let's do that next slide. Private virtue is really that personal relationship you have between you and God. And, and you show him that you love and revere him through your, his obedience to his teachings. And public virtue, let's do the next slide, Viv, is really that idea of giving back to society and being willing to make sacrifices for the greater good of your neighborhoods and communities. And I just have to laugh because <laughs> I'm not talking about vaccination and masks. This is how the, our virtual virtue signalers would like to say, use this idea. Well, what I'm talking about is exactly what we heard from Tyler and from Sam. You're willing to do the hard and scary thing to get on that wall, to shore up your community and to take a stand and to speak truth and to sacrifice of your time and talents and really consecrate what you have to the building up of this country and your community. And that's what we're talking about with public virtue. So there's a treasure trove of stories and examples throughout history that we can glean from and that we're going to share a little bit in our lesson today. There are some great recommendations of books and resources in lesson number five in our book that help promote this idea of teaching virtue to our children that would open up a, a great discussion with your kids and help them internalize these ideas and, and really just allow you to spend some quality time with your children talking about important things. So um, Viv, let's pull up the next slide. Just recently, my darling little son, who's 18 years old, he's a senior in high school. He's six, four. He came down. It was like the, one of the first days of school and I gave him his little Slurpee. And my husband and I had just returned back from uh, Tuskegee University in Alabama. And I bought this little book at the bookstore. And I, so here's my big kid sitting down, you know, one of the first days of school. And I'm like, honey, I want to read you this book about uh, Tuskegee University and its founder, Booker T. Washington. He was a former slave and went on to, to uh, form this country or form this uh, um, university. And, uh, and he, along with other prominent Black teachers, George Washington Carver, who taught at this historically Black college, and, and these great men and how they were able to overcome so much and give back not only to the Black community, but to our country. And so it took about 10 minutes to read this little book to my big old kid, you know, who's slipping his uh, slurping his smoothie. I wanted to actually take that picture, but I didn't take it. And uh, I really felt as I got him off that he probably, and we had a, a really good, just a little discussion about Booker T and what it takes to be a man like Booker T. And I, as I sent that kid off to school that morning, I thought, what I just did with my boy in 10 minutes is probably more valuable than he's going to get the whole six, seven, eight hours in school. Virtue is not hereditary, mamas. It has to be earned and it has to be learned. It's not a permanent quality in us or our children. It has to be cultivated continually. Um, there's an eight minute video that I would possibly show. I'm not going to show it today just because there's so much to talk about. Viv, I'm not sure if we have the slide for that, but this is another resource that you could use, uh, you know, as you would um, teach your little cottage meeting, you push play, and then you could show this little eight minute video on how the foundation of our constitution is based on virtue, but the rules and law don't necessarily make us good. It's, it's our internal beliefs and values based on God's law 
that that really helps determine a nation and determine us the sense of knowing right from wrong and then acting accordingly uh, because good government must be parred with virtuous people. Viv, let's see the next slide. Uh, Patrick Henry, who was the first governor of Virginia, he's the great founding father that said, give me liberty or give me death. He would go on to say that bad men don't make good citizens. And he evoked uh, this, the salt of the earth scripture out of Matthew, Matthew 5. 13. Let's see the next video or um, slide. Viv. There's Patrick Henry. And he said, look, we are the salt of the earth. And, and this, this is an expression, a common expression in the scriptures that we are the preservatives. So what are we preserving? If God said, you're the salt of the earth. And if you lose your savor, you're not, you're not much good. <laughs> you're no good. That scripture says, you know, when we think of salt, we think of something that preserves, that improves, that enhances. So how can we be the salt of this nation and not lose our savor, not lose this feeling and love of this nation and love of freedom and liberty? So in the 5,000-year leap, we've got this slide up here. But remember, you know I love this book, these 28 principles that our founding fathers drew from to establish this United States the second principle and the third principle talk about virtue. The second principle says a free people cannot survive under a Republican constitution unless they remain virtuous and morally strong. So there you go. What are we preserving? We're preserving this nation through uh, its founding principles that are contained in our inspired documents. And because these principles are based on God's law or people's law of self-governance, in order to maintain this type of representative government, our framers knew we had to be good. We had to be godly. We had to be looking to God to be able to preserve a, a, a government that's based on his laws. Um, then let's do the next slides. Principle number three of that book, The 5,000-Year Leap, tells us that the most promising method of securing a virtuous people is to elect virtuous leaders. Now we're told in the scriptures in Proverbs 29.2 that when the wicked rule, the people groan, they mourn. Have we seen that? I mean, I think of Clinton and that debacle with Monica Lewinsky and how we lowered the level of morality because now everyone is talking about oral sex. And if the president does it, I guess I can do it. I mean, young kids that maybe didn't even know what that was. Our president, you led the way. And how we mourned as a nation as the, the level of morality was lowered. And then in Proverbs 29, 2, it tells us, though, that when the righteous flourish, when righteous leaders are in office, the people rejoice and how we are rejoicing on the East Coast this morning with that governor, this new governor who is pro-life. He's unabashedly proud of his stance for life. And he supports parents and parental rights. And he believes parents should be key in what, you know, are, is being taught in the curriculums in the school. 
And so we're rejoicing to have this kind of virtuous and morally strong citizen in the governorship in Virginia now. And, and, you know, this would be something you could discuss in your cottage meeting. What does a virtuous and morally strong citizen look like? What are their uh, social and political policies that they uh, would uphold? What would their values, family values be of, of this kind of citizen? And what do virtuous and morally strong leaders look like? So in chapter three of virtue three in the principles, there's a really good example Thomas Jefferson talks about of what a natural aristocracy is, where this is like the best citizens serve in the government. They're kind of like drafted in because of just the character of their life. Like George Washington was drafted in to be president. He didn't want to do that, but you know, People had such confidence in him and, and he had proven himself and he rose to the occasion because he knew God. This was a calling that God needed him to do versus this idea Thomas Jefferson talks about in principle three of an artificial aristocracy where a person obtains office by wealth or by birth or by station in life or by special influences and what makes the best leader and someone who belongs to this natural aristocracy or this artificial aristocracy. So study um, that virtue number three and, and ponder about that. And that would be a good, something you get to discussion at a cottage meeting if you're meeting in person. So Bill, let's see the next slide. Benjamin Franklin, a wonderful a quote from Benjamin Franklin, who we love says, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt, they have more need of masters. Are we seeing this today as, as we're doing less God and more reliance on the government and the president to tell us what to do? I mean, just think of COVID. You, you know, I, I mean, it's almost like some people have shut off their brain. Whatever the government tells them to do, they're going to do instead of going to God and asking him how you can enhance your immune systems and, and make uh, lifestyle choices so you can be healthier instead of, you know, wearing a mask like a religion or, or getting going on the second, third and fourth booster shot. You know, I, it's so interesting. I've been gone for two weeks now in Egypt such a contrast to how they're handling COVID. To be honest with you, there's 100 million people in Egypt, 26 million live in Cairo. We spent quite a bit of time in Cairo. It was unusual to see anyone wearing a mask there. 8% of this country, Egypt, has been vaccinated. Where I live in Washington, D.C., 90% of the people have been vaccinated and we're still wearing masks and we're still having restrictions uh, at the schools and businesses and so forth. Egypt, on the other hand, it seemed like there was no COVID. Only 8% are vaccinated. They have a much lower transmission rate. Uh, for, for every 100,000 people in Egypt, there are only 10 incidences of COVID. So we asked our tour guide, why does there not seem to be COVID in Egypt? And she said, well, if a person gets COVID, they go to the doctor, the doctor prescribes vitamin C and D to boost their immune system, and then tells everyone in their home where they live, where this person might live. And she knows, she knows this because her son came down with COVID. And this is what the doctor said. He said, take vitamin C and D. Make everyone that you're living with take vitamin C and D to boost your immune and then send them home with ivermectin, 
that you can buy in the pharmacy that some of us bought in the pharmacies of Egypt for $3 and it eradicates COVID. There is almost no COVID in Egypt. Whereas here in America, we turned our brains off because instead of looking to God for inspiration, how we can stay healthy and strong, we just, whatever, you know, <laughs> the medical experts are telling us to do and living in a high amounts of fear. I just thought that that was so interesting to me as we're less likely to turn to God and more willing to be told what to do. We now, uh, we need more masters. We need to be, we don't have the confidence uh, uh, in, in God, because we've gotten out of the habit of turning to God. So to me, that was an example of what uh, Benjamin Franklin is saying here. Are we less inclined to turn to God and more inclined to turn to government or other entities to solve our problems and tell us what to do when we're not influenced by God and trying to live lives, trying, trying to live lives of virtue, we fall prey to what, you know, governments are telling us to do or what other entities. So, you know, I'm a basketball mama. I have a kid in the NBA. So I'm always kind of interested when I hear little snippets. So the, the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, just a few days ago, put a, a, a notice out to all the NBA players not to go take contracts for any teams in Texas because of their election laws and their restrictive abortion laws. Can you imagine uh, an association that is supposed to advance their people, black people, are telling these players not to play for Texas teams because of their abortion laws, knowing that abortion disproportionately affects the black communities. There's uh, black people make up 14%. Are you following me here? 14% of the population, but attribute up to 36% of abortions. So an organization that is supposed to promote its people are advocating uh, to not go and play in states that have more restrictive abortion laws. So in a, in a sense, they're saying, I'm, I'm losing my thought here, but in a sense, they're saying, that it, uh, to me, I'm, I'm thinking, is this how you advance your people is by promoting laws that kill black babies? And so I, I asked my husband, do you think the NBA players are going to take this statement from the NAACP seriously? And my husband, because it, it didn't it didn't get too much traction, but it came out just a few days ago. He said, no, honey, I don't I don't think they are because these players are going to go where they have the opportunity to play and where they can get the best contract. But I thought how interesting that, that the NAACP feels so emboldened. And, and I dare say, you know, the black community is a faithful community, a lot of them. And I think they would probably be offended at this entity, encouraging them not to play for states that would restrict abortion, even though the whole title of the NAACP is the advancement of colored people, but we're okay with killing black babies, you know? And so it's, to me, it's, it's an example, again, as we, as we turn from God to know what to do, and we look to organizations, to government, to entities to tell us what to do, we, we stand the chance of losing this country because we're not, you know, we don't remain virtuous by, by 
you know, being told what to do. We may remain virtuous as we're in the word, as we study the Bible, and then we go to God in prayer and to know, you know, how we can make our actions consistent with his law to, to honor the sanctity of life. So in the Promises of the Constitution, Bib, let's see that next book there. In the Promises of the Constitution, you know I really like this book because it's short little one-page vignettes that you can read to your kids, your grandkids, and have a little discussion at night before you put them to bed or in the morning as you feed them breakfast. Um, it talks about in uh, sections vignette 1.7, 3.6, and you see in there 7.7, 12.1, and 12.2. It talks about virtue. And when you have virtue, you will have peace in your life. And it talks about the character of General Washington and the virtue and the grit and the faith that he had to do what he did for this nation. And then those last three vignettes talk about how freedom and morality and virtue are synonymous and they're intertwined. So I recommend um, uh, reviewing, studying and, and, and teaching those little vignettes to your children. In our supplemental material in lesson number five, uh, there's an article called The Heart of Education and it talks about how to educate our children. Now, we know our kids are being pummeled right now by critical race theory. And even if they don't call it critical race theory, they're weaving it into the schools because these teachers are products of godless curriculum. And these younger teachers believe this stuff. And I know this, my 18-year-old kids said, mom, it seems like every class I take, they're weaving in the idea of race, white supremacy, black victimhood, what an awful country this is. And so, you know, we're worried. We're worried about what is being taught to our children. And in this article, the supplemental material, it talks about as we're focusing on teaching facts and figures, and we're neglecting the hearts of our children, because ultimately it is the heart that guides their actions, not their brains. So as we're focusing on facts and figures and atrocities that have occurred, and not the victories that have been achieved or can be achieved. The result is that we're, we're building a nation of intelligent enough kids with no moral foundation, no inspired vision. And this is the dangerous thing. Viv, do you have the next slide? So this is a little picture of my daughter, Mary Alice. She is a senior in college at the University of Utah. She just came home a few weeks ago to watch the kids while my husband and I were in Egypt. So I took this little picture. This is the front of, of our house. And I just talked to her last night and she said, mom, you're never going to believe what happened in my peace and conflict studies class at the University of Utah. She said the teacher, and I knew that I, I, she must be taking that class for general ed because a peace and conflict studies class, I don't know, my red flag goes up <laughs> with a class like that at the university. But she said her professor the other day had all the kids divide into groups and they, he wanted them to come up with some of their top terrorist groups in the world. So then, then they all convened back together and shared what they considered were the top terrorist groups in the world. And as she's telling me this, she's laughing because of the ridiculousness of what, I, I don't think the other kids in class were laughing because this is what they came up with. 
She said the first terrorist group they considered was all religions. The second was the U.S. military. And the third were Trump, all Trump supporters. These are the kids in her university class. So look, we're starting to see the product of what began to happen 50 and 60 years ago when the Supreme Court began to remove prayer from the public school systems and to remove Bible reading and even pledging allegiance because it mentions God. And now we have kids 20, 30, 50, 60 years later thinking religion is a terrorist group. You know, our military, the Trump supporters, I'm, I'm probably police was number four. You know, it makes me think of that story last week about the Columbine father who lost a daughter in that Columbine massacre 20 years ago, where he said, look, the massacre was not just a tragedy, but it was a spiritual event that should be forcing us to look where the real blame lies. So Bill, let's show that next um, slide. So in this article, in the heart of education in our supplemental material, it talks about these German engineers and scientists in the 1930s who were amongst the most educated and highly trained, uh, producing cutting-edge weaponry, submarines, missiles, airplanes, but they were not well-read enough, well-read enough, or steeped enough in history or psychology or ethics or morals to refuse Hitler's bidding with the death camps and the torture. Only a combination of top technical training and poor leadership education could have allowed this to happen. A less highly trained people could not have done it, and a truly educated people would not have done it. These Nazi engineers and architects, these exa this example might seem a little extreme, but seriously, what is education all about if it doesn't teach us what is good and ideal and right. Is it really education? To me, it feels like some of what our children are being taught today is more like indoctrination or manipulation. Um, Viv, let's see the next slide there. I know as mamas, we are concerned about the moral decay in society and the violence and hate and how it's spilling over into the education system. Uh, you know, it, it would seem educating our children is does not seem to be curing what is ailing us, especially if they're being taught anti-American or godless curriculum. So JK Rowling said, it is our choices that show what we are, what we truly are far more than our abilities. And then Viv, let's see that next slide. Theodore Roosevelt said, to educate a person in the mind, but not in morals is to educate a menace to society. Now, what examples, mamas, are we seeing of this today? You know, I, I think of young girls that have been taught a real number uh, in society and even in schools and certainly in the universities that it's their body and their choice and they, their body is autonomous and they can do whatever they want with their sexual rights, their re reproductive rights, uh, and, and they haven't been taught the morality of creating life and protecting the life of the unborn and how we are to guard that as a woman and what a divine right and privilege and gift it is to be able to house the creation, a uh, God's creation. And, you know, it makes me think, you know, once again, 
um, of, of what the NCAA statement to these NBA players were, that they're about the advancement of their people, but they want to kill their people. You know, we have, we're creating menaces to societies when we allow this train of thought, this kind of education, this kind of reasoning to prevail. So when I was in Egypt, I mean, there's also only so many ancient temples we can go to. Excuse me, I'm sporting a cold because I got sick on the trip because we had wake-up calls at 4 a.m. every morning of this trip to go out. and uh, We took a cruise along the Nile, but I couldn't even enjoy the Nile because I was on the, on the bus to drive three hours away to see an ancient temple. And, and I'm going to tell you about some of the things that I saw in some of the lessons of mothers and children, these hieroglyphics. It was astounding. The, the, the feeling that the mothers, these ancient mothers had for their children. Mothers have always known the most important thing that they will do will be to rear and train and protect and teach their children. So anyways, I'm on the bus, going to another temple, and I'm talking to one of my friends who does great work in her state with abortion clinics and trying to get little young girls to not abort their babies. And um, did you know about half of the states have a 24-hour waiting period when a girl decides to get an abortion? They have to wait 24 hours and the state can provide counseling services. And there's about seven to 10 states that actually require mandatory sonograms before a girl can get an abortion because uh, studies and statistics show that if a little girl can see that baby, there's a strong chance that she won't abort that baby. So my girlfriend in Egypt, we took a break from talking about the hieroglyphics and the ancient temples. And she said that her friend is one of the nurses that gives the sonograms to these little mamas uh, that are going to get an abortion. And she said uh, recently, her friend just prayed to God, what can I say to this young little mom that was lying there? She was performing the sonogram. What can I say to, to get this mother to save her baby? And, um, and my friend said that her friend who's the nurse, a thought came to her and said, do you want to hold the hand of your baby? And she said, put your hand on your tummy. And right as that young girl put her hand on her belly, this little baby on the sonogram's little hand went up to reach up to that little, that sensation on the belly. And that little girl did not abort her baby. So as we tell these kind of stories to our children to help teach them and to touch their hearts, what is proper conduct? What is keeping with God's law? I will be teaching that story and telling that story to my children over the next few weeks as I talk to them. But these kind of stories leave lasting impressions on their heart. There is another great story in our supplemental material under lesson five about the nobility of a boy. How are we doing on time here? So it tells, and this is a great story. I have taught this story to my kids in our little family devotional through the years. There was a young boy, David, who lived in New York City in the early 1900s, and he worked as an errand boy at a bank. And his father, excuse me, girls, I just have to blow my nose. I've got this cold here. His father had passed away and his mother and sister were ill and they couldn't work. So David really was the sole support of their family. It took every penny he earned to take care of them. So one day the doctor 
made a house call to their house. Remember those good old days when doctors made house calls to check up on the mother and the sister. And he said, they're not doing well. And you, unless you can get them to the country where they can have fresh air and sun, uh, I don't know if they're going to make it. Now, this young boy, David, barely had enough money to provide for the needs of this family, let alone send them off to the country and provide housing for them. And he was brokenhearted and really feeling quite helpless. So the next day at work, he is, or I think a few days later, it says he was at the bank and he was sweeping and under the table, he found a big roll of bills of money and he scooped it up and he was heading to the office of the bank president when suddenly he realized what he could do with his money. He could send his mother and his sister Millie away for the whole summer. They could get better. Now, no one knew that he had found this money on the floor. And he thought in a split second, I'm going to keep it. And so he dropped this wad of bills in his front pocket. And as he left work that day, he just knew that everyone could see this wad protruding out. And he fingered this money all the way home. And when he arrived home, he checked on his mother and his sister. And an hour later, that kid, David, was back in the bank, shuffling quickly. Excuse me. I'm drying my eyes and I'm drying my nose here and shuffling to the bank president's office. And he entered in, he threw this wad of bills on the desk. He whispered, I found this when I was sweeping and kind of with a cry of pain, he fled the office. So the next morning when David went back to work to do his work, the bank president actually called him into the office and he said, David, I want to know why you brought that money back last night. I know why you wanted it and what it would have done for your family. No one knew that you had found it. Why did you bring it back? And then this young kid leaned over the desk and he looked into the eyes of that big president. And he said, sir, as long as I live, I have to live with myself and I don't want to live with a thief. And then a few days later, the story goes on to say, Mother and Millie, Sister Millie, went to the country, but not alone. David went with them, and they spent the whole summer in the countryside, a gift from the bank to show their deep appreciation for the nobility of that boy. Now, isn't that a great story uh, that you could share with your children over the dinner table in the morning before you put them to bed? And then you could talk about, you know, what is virtue? What is this idea of you know, doing the right thing when no one is looking. And, you know, the question is, mamas and grandmothers, how do we teach this kind of virtue to our children? You know, the same kind of virtue that David exhibited in this story here. Now, for years in my family devotional, I am a mama. I've had seven children, two little boys died in infancy. I have five very wild and alive children, ages 26 on down to 14 in a little morning devotional that I have had for years with my kids, where we'd read a little bit of the Bible. I teach them some principles of liberty. I teach them some stories. Several, many years ago, I began to teach them of one virtue a week. And I got this idea, Viv, can I see that next slide? I got this idea out of a book and there it is, The Family's Virtue Guide. And um, Viv, can you see, show the next slide? It goes through 55 virtues and here are the virtues. And, and then it tells you 
it gives you a little um, definition of what the virtue is. So like the first virtue is assertiveness. So what I would do is each week I would have one virtue and I tape it up in the refrigerator or wherever I would teach the devotional. And I would just go over, well, what is assertiveness? And I got this from the book. And then this book kind of outlines what the virtue is and why do we practice it and what would assertiveness look like? And then it gives examples of what it would be to be assertive or not be assertive. So I just spend a few minutes each day and I would teach them these, these virtues. And I've done this for years. And some of these virtues, courtesy, determination, flexibility, joyfulness, modesty, just to name a few. And, um, you know, I wondered if, if it was really doing any good, but as I would post the virtue each week and I would talk to the kids about what virtues are, I would remind them that virtues are really just Christ-like attributes and qualities. And as we practice these virtues, this is how we become more like Jesus Christ. This is how we emulate him. Now, Viv, can I show the next um, Okay, so girls, most of my kids are out of the house now. They're adult. Some of them are married. But I'm still teaching them virtues through a little devotional that I send out probably five times a week where I give a little quote and then I give a scripture and then I just bear my testimony of that virtue and I tell the kids what we're doing. So this was my devotional. I told you I'd show you what it looks like. It's just a text. I just text it to my kids. So I give a little quote and this was on Monday morning, the day after Halloween. So it's a quote on exercise and getting the right amount of sleep and eating right. And as you take care of your body, it increases your capacity to receive and understand revelation when your when your temple is, is clean and strong. And then I, I always quote, I give, give a little, little quote, and then I always put a little scripture. And so this is a scripture from Corinth from 1 Corinthians that talks about how your body is a temple and it's what houses the spirit of God in you. And then I just said here, my darling children, don't neglect exercise, sleep, and eating right. This is how the spirit of the Lord will be able to thrive within a well-kept body. If you're not taking care of your temple, you won't be able to glorify God and receive that which you need from the spirit to do the most good and to seek long-term peace and joy. So take it easy on the Halloween candy. Ha ha. Love you, my darling children. We're all up and at it in this fight each day. It's not easy. I know. Keep the Lord close and keep each other close. So that was what my devotional looked like this Monday. And then Viv, let's let me uh, let's do the next slide. And then I always send a little picture of what we did the day before. And uh, my husband is a bishop of a young single adult congregation. So the day before was Sunday. So we had a mix and mingle. Dad spoke, I told the kids, he, he spoke Sunday to all the YSA's young single adults. And we had a mix and mingle and dad put on his Egyptian wear during the mix and mingle. And now, you know, the, the, the kids in the congregation thought that was so funny. Let's see the next slide, Viv. And then what else did I put on the devotional? Oh, and then I, I showed a picture of Halloween. We're going trick-or-treating that night. There's baby Marie. And then you can see one of the kids. Mostly the kids don't ever respond to my devotional. It's like it goes into a dark hole. But my 26-year-old said, Dad, you're ridiculous. 
And then dad put, I look delicious. And that was our family devotional for Monday morning. It's as simple as that. But even though the kids don't respond to it, sometimes they do. And this is how I still can continue to teach them to live lives of virtue and, and to take care of their body. That was, and to be honest with you, the devotional this morning was on the valor of virtue. And I used a quote from our lesson and I used that, uh, the salt and the savor scripture. And so that's just an idea, girls. I just am giving you ideas of how you can teach virtue and qualities of virtue to your children, to your young children, to your adult children. Even if you just had grandchildren, maybe you could put out a little devotional to your grandchildren uh, every day or once a week or something. I just give you ideas. So recently, my son, who's 23 years old, who is a basketball player in the NBA, um, he met with a group of disabled kids. Uh, it was a friend of his uncle. And I would have never known that this kid did this. He spent the whole evening with them. But the friend of his uncle sent the uncle the picture. And then the uncle, who's my brother, sent it to me. So when I mentioned this to Frankie, I was like, Frankie, I didn't know that you were going to go talk to uh, these, this, this little um, group of disabled people at their little rec center for the evening. And, you know, he wasn't eager to elaborate on it. He didn't put it on social media. He just said, yeah, it was really sweet, mom. And, you know, this is what we want our kids to do is we teach them about virtue and lives of virtue. It gets in them and they want to do good, even when no one is looking, but they want to do good just because it's the right thing. And I think maybe it's all those years of trying to teach them these little virtues when that kid that I just showed you a picture of, I think slept through most of my devotionals, but it makes me think that maybe teaching these little virtues in a family setting did do some good. And this very kid that you just saw a picture of was in my home a few weeks ago. The NBA season has started now, so I won't see, he won't be able to come home for about seven months. But as he sat across from me a few weeks ago, and he told me in, in our home in DC, and I think I told you this, he wept, he began to cry and he said, I wish that I could do some of the things that my other friends in the NBA do, but I cannot because of what you taught me, mom, what you and dad taught us. And because I love God, I can't, just can't do it. And it's sometimes lonely for him because he can't go and do some of the things the guys are doing on their off hours. But this is I'm just giving you an example. When you get virtue in your kid, it will, it will cause him to think twice about following the crowd because even though no one is watching, I don't know what this kid does on his, he's 23 years old. I don't know what he does in his spare time, but he told me he, it, it prevents him from doing things that he know would not be pleasing before God because of these ideals that had been put within him. And I'm not, girls, don't, please don't get me wrong here. My kids are no angels. Believe me, I have spent enough hours crying over some of the knucklehead things that they did. But as we teach them these things, they know how to self-correct when they go down a path that doesn't bring them happiness and that does not feel good in their heart and their soul. And when you teach them the principles of God of repentance and forgiveness, they can course correct and they can get back on that path that will bring peace and joy and contentment 
into their hearts and souls. So Viv, let's see the next slide. In chapter four of Raising the Next Generation of Patriots. Now, girls, we're redoing this book right now. And so this book, along with our cottage meeting manual, will be redone in January. This is an ebook that you can find online. It's a really little book, but it's a great book. And in chapter four, it talks about how to plant these seeds of virtue in our children and grandchildren. And it talks about uh, stories, how stories are a wonderful way to teach ideas that can then carry them into their hearts. Planting virtue in our children is like wrapping the trait that we hope to develop inside of a story. And, you know, we're not just talking about reading books together because there's a lot of value in that, but maybe even putting the book down and looking that child in the eye and asking them, what does this story mean for you? How does this make, how does this inspire you? How can we be like the person in this story? You know, this kind of thing transforms a mother into a trusted guide and confidant when a mother teaches this way and really weaves the hearts together with that mother and that child and creates bonds that are nearly impossible to break. You know, I will never forget my mama reading to me on our old couch in the front room in those hot summers with the fans blowing because we didn't have AC. Her reading the story, Viv, let's see that next slide, of where the red fern grows. Do you remember that book? Or the boxcar children about orphans that would do anything to stay together and they actually live in a boxcar for a time. And I remember my mama's voice welling up with emotion at some of these tender scenes of love and loyalty and triumph and and the sweet conversations we had from books like this. It will be our children's ability to maintain hope and virtue during their tempting and difficult times in their life. It will be the direct, it will be in, in direct proportion to how deep and how broad their reservoir of stories are in their hearts when we stock their little hearts full of these kind of stories of virtuous and faithful and courageous examples, it will help our children provide solutions for their trials, for their temptations, for really almost every problem that they may face. And this is, I think, why teaching from the story Bible and from the scriptures is so important because there's so many beautiful, inspiring stories from scripture So let's look at what the Bible says about virtue. Then let's see that next slide. It talks about in Isaiah 520, woe unto them that take night uh, for day or light for dark, good for evil, bitter for sweet. You know, are we not seeing that in Isaiah today that people are calling good evil or, or bad, you know, beautiful, you know, in the world we're seeing how immorality And perversiveness is being touted as cool or liberating or loving or, you know, how things that are good and godly are being portrayed as hateful or racist or intolerant. We're seeing good being called bad and bad being called good, uh, like Isaiah prophesied in um, 
chapter 520. In Philippians, it tells us whatsoever things are honest or just or pure or lovely or a good report, if there be anything virtuous or, or praiseworthy, we need to think on these things. We need to ponder these attributes of virtue. And then Proverbs 3110, that famous verse that says, who can find a virtuous woman for her price is um, far above rubies. And then the verses 11 through 31 describes attributes of a virtuous woman. This would be something that you could discuss in a cottage meeting. Just take some time to actually go through those verses. How can we mothers become this kind of virtuous mother and wife and woman and imagine the impact that we could have on our marriage, a woman who guards her virtue, who guards her body, who cherishes and defends her marriage and her family, this kind of woman. So moving right along here, um, you know, it's one thing to look the part to say you're a virtuous woman or you believe in God, but it's really another thing to actually be these things, to, to walk the talk. You know, I saw something so sweet, Gloria. I don't know if you're on the call today. On her your, on her Facebook, she posted teaching a little Bible um, class to the children in her church. It was so cute. And uh, and then I think of you know the great mamas we heard from this morning. I mean, this this is what walking the talk looks like. You know, we we say we believe, but we actually are going to do. We're going to do those things that show, that internalize, that cement this identity that we say we are, that we are. Now in the, um, I'm going to cruise through in the, in the manual, there's an article called the perfect gentleman. And it talks about how we can match our actions with what we say. And, And so what we say versus what we actually do. And this is such an important concept for children to understand. So this article entitled The Perfect Gentleman talks about a politician that says all the right things, but underneath, he really is a conniving, devious man. And the sins of our time have been the sins of like the biblical times, you know, having a dazzling outside, but really a black heart inside and we talk about how we can match what we say with what we actually do and and how we can um, teach our children to be doers of the word not just you know talkers or speakers or hearers of the word and that comes as well as being a patriot you know we say we love america we wear on the fourth of july our little american flag t-shirts and we put out our flags but how do we really get our children to internalize this love of this country you know, my mama, uh, she, I'll never forget her teaching me what our taxes go for and why, why we pay taxes and, and the benefits of the lovely roads and the ability to, you know, to travel because of some of our taxes. And now that I think about it, my mother put a really positive spin on taxes. <laughs> you know, I used to think uh, taxes were such a wonderful thing. And I'm not so sure I think they're so wonderful now, but there is some good that comes from them. But I learned this at the hand of my mother. My mama would take me to the town hall meetings and I didn't always understand what was going on, but I knew it was important to mom and it was kind of exciting to be there with her. And she would take me boating. She would take me right in that booth and let me poke the holes and wear the sticker. And so she was raising up this next generation of patriots by these small and simple things that she did. 
And so, uh, you know, you might want to think back, what are some of the things your parents did to instill in you a love of patriotism in this country? And what are some of the things that you're doing now to instill in your children, not just to walk the talk, but to be good citizens? What does that look like? There's a wonderful story. One of my most favorite stories about Nathan Hale in the supplemental material. I taught this story to my children. Do you remember Nathan Hale during the Revolutionary War? Thanks, Steve. He was a 21-year-old boy, and he was hung uh, for this country. And just before he was hung, he said, I, my only regret is that I only have but one life to lose for this country. And uh, I, I don't know, I just feel the spirit of this, this young boy. Every time I tell the story, um, he graduated from Yale in 1773, and he was a little teacher. And when the war, Revolutionary War began, he, his, a friend encouraged him to do something great. So he joined uh, George Washington's Continental Army. And George Washington was desperate to know um, what the British were planning to do. They were going to invade Manhattan. And so Nathan Hell signs up, the only one that came forward to be this spy to penetrate the British lines in Long Island. And sure enough, he was caught. And, uh, and two weeks later, he was captured by the Queen's Ranger and they ordered him to be hung the next morning. And um, so he asked, he wrote a letter to his mother and his brother, but the British destroyed it because they didn't want it to be known that a man with such firmness was about to be hung. And he asked for a Bible that night uh, and they refused. And Nathan Hill was marched out um, and hung on an apple tree in Rutgers order orchard, which is today East Broadway and market in New York city. It's Chinatown today. And there's actually, um, let's have the next slide. There's actually a statue of Nathan Hill in New York city at the city park in City Hall in Manhattan. And one of the newspapers a few months after Nathan Hell's death said that um, he, just before he died, he gave a spirited speech and he told them that they were shedding the blood of the innocent and that if he had 10,000 lives, he would have laid them all down if called to it in the defense of his injured, bleeding country. Now imagine teaching your children and telling them this story and talking about how can we be like Nathan Hill and how might we have to get on the wall and give some of our best blood, time, and energy in the saving of this nation. You know, Nathan Hill's posterity would go on to become, one of his nephews would go on to become the governor of Massachusetts and would speak in um, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, right before Lincoln did at the Gettysburg Address. And his grandnephew went on to become a famous author. And in one of his writings, this grandnephew said, I come from men who were not afraid in the battle. Now, Nathan Hale could have never imagined at young 21 years old how his posterity was going to be blessed because of his example. And oftentimes, Mama, some of the things that we do, we think, is anyone even noticing it? Is, any, is this all for not what I'm trying to do in, in my community or teach to my children? You just never know. And look how it affected, his example affected his posterity, Nathan Hell. And so it kind of reminds me, Viv, let's do the next slide, of the great poem by Ralph Walder Emerson in our lesson today. It says, 
let's see, it says, so nigh is grandeur to our dust, so near is God to man. When duty whispers low, thou must, the youth replies, I can. Now, these are the kind of kids and grandkids we want to raise, ones that won't shrink or fade, who are not afraid in the battle, who will say, okay, I will. Lord, here am I. What do you want me to do? So, you know, we could talk about right now, what are some of the battles that our kids are fighting today? I mean, I know my kids, they have to wear a mask everywhere they go in their school systems. And my little girl, uh, you, you know, is, is feeling that pressure uh, but uh, it, it's so interesting. My, my college girl, Mary Alice, the one I showed you a picture of, I talked to her last night. She said, Mom, I was in a three-hour class today. I was the only one in class that didn't wear a mask. And she said, I never wear masks. And I'm like, good on you, sister. And so, you know, and there are many other, even more serious battles that your children are being tested with. I am here to tell you that if you will teach them these stories and you will teach them these principles of liberty, that it will help armor them up and help them fight their battles. Let's have the next slide, Viv. So, you know, in my little morning devotional, I teach one of the principles from the 5,000 year leap. And uh, just the other day, my little girl, and so I'll teach it to them and then I'll make her while she's eating her cereal. I'll, she'll read it and then I'll make her explain in her own little words, what does this mean? And she said, well, it means in order to have strong government and to be able to get along with people, we have to live by uh, God's law, which is natural law. And God's law is in the Bible. So we have to be in the Bible to know how to have the best government and how to you know, treat each other the way that we should. And, uh, and so this is one of the ways I'm teaching her these principles of liberty that I take one principle a week and we just read, I have her say it every day in our, our family devotional and to my young boy in, at night, we have another little devotional and um, he doesn't get as good of a devotional at night, to be honest with you, because I'm tired. My morning devotionals seem to be, I have better energy. But, uh, and then what I do in that devotional, and you've seen me do it, I hold up the newspaper and we review the headlines and we say, look, is what the Post is spinning today, is that really consistent with the principles of liberty? And it helps to give them a practical application of how to apply these principles and if they're being properly applied. And there's little Miss Marie with her smoothie uh, in the mornings. She gets a lot of I mean, while I have a captive audience as she's eating breakfast, I, I teach her, you know, it's amazing how much you can get when you're in when your kids are eating. So anyways, okay, so we're coming into the home stretch. Oh, my land, there's so much material to teach you. But there's just one last story in the materials that I love about Benjamin Franklin. Um, then let's see that that last slide. Um Benjamin Franklin, uh, let's see here. Where is that story? The great story of Benjamin Franklin. Okay, so the next morning, Benjamin Franklin. Oh, okay, so <laughs> he was sitting in his home one night and he heard someone stumble out on the cobblestone uh, little path before his house one night. And he made a note of this, Benjamin Franklin. There's so many reasons why we love Benjamin Franklin. 
And he said, I think I'm the cause of this man falling because there's not a light in my window that could have shown out on the street to permit this guy's misfortune of falling in front of my house. So the next morning, Benjamin Franklin hurries to the lantern maker shop and the shopkeeper asks him, he says, look, I'm looking for a lantern to light the way as people walk by my house at night. And he's like, you want a small little lantern? And he said, no, no, I need a huge lantern because I want to put it outside, uh, like open space on four sides. So it, it, it shines out onto the street almost. And uh, the shopkeeper's like, there's not a lantern big enough in all of Philadelphia to do what you're asking for, Ben. But anyways, the shopkeeper was able to put something together and he prepared the big rack and he hung this big light out on it and, and Ben said, uh, I'll, don't worry, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll install it in my house. And so the, the keeper was kind of puzzled, but he came through for Ben. And um, people began to come from far and wide to see this huge light that hung outside of ben, Benjamin Franklin's front porch. And one said, what an idea. And the other one said, hey, I'm going to do something like that. Why uh, stumble over these cobblestones when just a, a little light overhead can make the dark way plain? Trust old Benjamin Franklin, someone said, to think up a scheme like this to get the citizens of this busy little town uh, thinking about street lighting. You know, any person could have just talked and argued about it, but Benjamin Franklin, he went ahead and did something about it. He hung a light. He did the right thing, even though it wasn't required of him to make life on his street a little safer, a little more comfortable for those passing by. Now, you can tell this story to your children and you could say, you know, how, how can we be like Benjamin Franklin? How can we leave a situation or our space that we reside in? How can we leave it improved or a little bit better for um, people how can we be a part of the solution like benjamin franklin was instead of the problem i love benjamin franklin he wrote a book on these he had 13 virtues that he lived his life by and he kept a checklist of these 13 virtues every night and uh, uh, on how well he did and he actually wrote this book called the book of virtues and here are the virtues that he lived every day by he would assess how he did you know, modern day historians have done such a number on Benjamin Franklin, you know, showing him as a womanizing, uh, you know, person with illegitimate children. More money has been spent on, mis on maligning his character than any other founding father, because in his day, he was known as the father of morality, the golden patriot. And so historians, modern day historians, have tried to really um, tear him down because the enemies of freedom don't want you to study or to revere him. So they have perpetuated lies about his character. Viv, let's see the next slide. I would really recommend a wonderful book called The Real Benjamin Franklin that really dispels the falsehood and myths about him. He was such a great example of virtue. Um, I will never forget a few years ago when my husband served in the state Senate, we were in the governor's mansion for a function and the governor is talking about how he's a descendant of Benjamin Franklin. 
And he said, I know that he kind of had some dalliances with women and he wasn't perfect and had less than a stellar reputation. But then he went on to say some good things about his cousin, he called him. And when the governor said that, ouch, it hurt my heart because I knew the truth about Benjamin Franklin. Let's see the next slide. So I went up to the governor after that function and I said, hey, I said, did you know your cousin was actually known as the father of morality? He was known as the golden patriot. And I said, I have a book I want you to read about him. It's called The Real uh, Benjamin Franklin. And I told him I was going to bring it up to his office in the Capitol the next day. So sure enough, I took that book, I wrote an inscription, and I left it with his secretary in his office. And about a week later, he wrote me a letter. And he said, thank you for helping, you know, set the record straight with Benjamin Franklin. I look forward to reading it. So mamas, as you learn and as you teach, you know, about the, our founding fathers and, and, and teach the greatness of their lives and the virtue by which they live their lives, we'll not only want to emulate Benjamin Franklin, we might have to actually defend him, you know, to people that, uh, that uh, you know, need to be set straight. So mamas, whoo, this has been a, a, a lot of material in this lesson today. There's actually nine questions I wove into this lesson. Typically, I would review on um, the video of the lesson these nine questions. Or if you were to teach this class in a cottage meeting setting, you could stop the video and discuss the questions as I ask them. But there have been nine questions. You could have some really interesting conversations uh, in a cottage meeting or even with your children um, by some of the things that we've studied today in this lesson number five. The stories and the lives of virtue that we teach our children and our own personal example of righteousness will be some of the greatest influences that we will have on our posterity, on our children, our grandchildren, because they are going to be the young warriors who are most certainly going to have to be on the front lines and defending all that so many that came before them held so dear. God bless you, mamas, as we keep trying in our imperfect and humble ways to teach the people we love the most these virtues of, of morality and decency and goodness, these virtues that are really attributes of Jesus Christ as we try and instill and write these stories and these virtues upon their hearts. Girls, by the way, do you like my, I wore my Egyptian jewels. It was like $3, so don't think that they were anything. But I, in honor of my Egypt trip, my hear my jewels. But anyways, okay, beautiful mamas, we have come to the end. Oh.